Welcome to another episode of More Than Bread. My name is Dan, and I'm your host and guide for this podcast. More Than Bread is a podcast that gets his name and purpose from a comment made in both the Old Testament and the New Testament of the Bible. Moses first spoke the words to the people of God as he was rehearsing their history, their journey. He said, yes, he, God, humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna, a food previously unknown to you and your ancestors. He he did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then Jesus repeated the challenge, the, the statement in the Gospels. I like the way Eugene Peterson puts it in this paraphrase, the message in Matthew 4. He writes, Jesus answered by quoting Deuteronomy, it takes more than bread to stay alive. It takes a steady stream of words from God's mouth. So that's what we're really all about. The life that comes from a steady stream of words from God's mouth. The God who created the world with a word, who sent Jesus as the word. The God who said that faith comes by hearing. So that's what we're all about, a life that comes from a steady stream of words from God's mouth. So, hey, hey, before we launch into the scripture reading, let me just say this podcast is pretty much a word of mouth deal. If you like it, tell someone. If you like it enough to tell someone, hit like and share or hit the ratings and give it a, you know, a, at least a three and a half star or whatever. And Spotify, Apple or Amazon let you do to let others know that you have benefited from this. So we're in Mark chapter 12, reading verses 1 through 27, and I'll be reading again from the New Living Translation. It says, Then Jesus began teaching them with stories. A man planted a vineyard. He built a wall around it, dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice, and built a lookout tower. This is a vineyard. Then he leased the vineyard to tenant farmers and moved to another country. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent one of his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers, the These were the rental farmers. The farmers grabbed the servant, beat him up, and sent him back empty-handed. The owner then sent another servant, but they insulted him and, and beat him over the head. The next servant he sent was killed. Others he sent were either beaten or killed until there was only one left, his son, whom he loved dearly. And the owner finally sent him, thinking, surely they will respect my son But the tenant farmer said to one another, here comes the heir to this estate. Let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they grabbed him and murdered him and threw his body out of the vineyard. What do you suppose, Jesus asked, what do you suppose the owner of the vineyard will do? I'll tell you, he will come and kill those farmers and lease the vineyard to others. Didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? The the stone that the builders rejected has now become this cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. The religious leaders wanted to arrest Jesus because he realized he was they realized he was telling the story against them that they were the wicked farmers but they were afraid of the crowd so they left him and went away. Later the leader sent some Pharisees and supporters of Herod to try to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested. Teacher they said we know how honest you are you're impartial and don't play favorites you Teach the way of God truthfully. Now tell us, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or shouldn't we? Jesus saw through their hypocrisy and said, why are you trying to trap me? Show me a Roman coin and I'll tell you. When they handed it to him, he asked whose picture and title are stamped on it. Caesar's, they replied. Well then, Jesus said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. His reply 
completely amazed them. And then Jesus was approached by some Sadducees, religious leaders who say there is no resurrection from the dead. They posed this question, teacher, Moses gave us a law that if a man dies, leaving a wife without children, his brother should marry the widow and have a child who will carry on the brother's name. Well, suppose there were seven brothers. The oldest one married and then died without children. So the second brother married the widow, but he also died without children. Then the third brother married her. This continued with all seven of them, and still there were no children. Last of all, the woman also died. So tell us, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Who's, who gets her in heaven, they're asking. For all seven were married to her. Jesus replied, your mistake is that you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. For when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. In this respect, they will be like the angels in heaven. But now as to whether the dead will be raised, haven't you ever read about this in the writings of Moses? In the story of the burning bush, long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he is the God of the living, not the dead. You've made a serious error. So, so Mark chapter 12 begins with a parable about the rejection of Jesus and then goes into a series of confrontations with people who are rejecting Jesus. Now, the confrontations are primarily with religious leaders of Jesus' day, Sadducees and Pharisees. These were all different terms for different groupings of religious leaders. That's par for the course. This happens over and over again in Jesus' life. They're a bit concerned with his popularity, a bit put off by his certainty, and alarmed by all the new stuff he seems to be teaching, especially the stuff that seems to equate him with God. So they want to diminish him in the eyes of others. So really, this section of Scripture is all about answering the question, Jesus, are you really the one? Are you the one who you say you are? Are you who you say you are? And if the answer to that question is yes, then why do people reject Jesus? I mean, think about this. He was born in a small rural village over 2,000 years ago, and yet he always was, always is, and always will be. He rarely traveled far from home. He was not a world traveler, but he was the word that spoke the whole world into existence. He, he lived a few years past 30, but his life divided history into two times, the time before Jesus and the time after Jesus. He was not an author, published poet, yet, yet more books have been written about him and more songs have been sung to him than, than any other person since the beginning of people. He, he was raised by a blue-collar couple, father a carpenter, mother a teenager. He could identify with today's working poor. In fact, he was born in the backwoods of Nazareth. Closest we can come to understanding that today might be to say that he was a hillbilly or a redneck. It was said of his region, can anything good ever come out of Nazareth? I mean, in his lifetime, did more than a dozen people call him friend? Did more than a few hundred ever call him leader? Did more than a few thousand ever hear him speak? He had no business. He didn't lead an army. He was never elected to political office. So many people missed him. They just never realized that he was the one. Of course, some people did. Like that time when they were out on a boat and a storm came, this wicked demonic storm season. Fishermen, experienced sailors were so fearful, afraid for their lives. Waves higher than a house tossed them back and forth. Wind drove the rain horizontal. It was a tie yourself to the mast and kiss your boat goodbye kind of storm. <laughs> Until Jesus woke up from his nap and spoke to the storm and said, Be still. 
Who is this man, Peter wondered? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And, and you know, it wasn't just his miracles. It, it was the way he saw people in the margins of life. It was the words that he spoke that had this way of birthing life into parched souls that caused people to say, I think he's the one. I'm going to follow his call. And yet, you know what? Each of us, each one of us listening to this, every one of you, myself, my, my, we, we have to answer that question personally. Jesus, are you the one? And as we look at Mark's gospel today in chapter 12, we're asking the question, why do people reject Jesus? And, and we do. Listen, the reality is that more people today reject Jesus than accept Jesus, right? And it was no different while Jesus lived. I think somehow in, in the church, we've we've developed this picture that really the crowds always loved Jesus, and there was just a handful of people who rejected Jesus, those in power, those who were religious. But but when you read the Gospels and study the story, you realize that his rejection was, was more widespread than that. The religious leaders wanted to kill him. His family thought he was crazy. The people of the Gerasenes asked him to leave because their pigs ran off the cliff. The rich young ruler walked away. When he begins to clarify his mission, hundreds of his disciples leave him. In a few episodes, we'll see one of his best friends, Peter, deny that he even knows him, and the rest of the disciples at that point will abandon Jesus. Long before Jesus came, the prophet Isaiah would look forward centuries in, into the future, right? He was despised and rejected. Years after he left, John will look back and write, he came to his own, but his own rejected him. See, when Jesus shows up, there's always a choice. Some believe and follow, some reject and walk away. So Jesus tells a story, this parable about rejection. In verse 1, it says, He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, and the man represents God, and the vineyard is the world, and God plants the vineyard, and he, he puts a lot into it. He dug the hole of the wine press and built the tower to keep watch over it, and then he rented the vineyard out to some farmers. He didn't sell it to them. It still belongs to him, but he, he's letting them use it. And at, at harvest time, he sends a, a servant back to collect from them the fruit of the vineyard, but but they seized him and beat him and sent them away empty-handed, and, and he sends another and another, and they're killed, and, and he sent many, and the servants represent all those who have come to the world to, to tell the world about God's way. Some they beat and others they killed, but, but to none of them did they listen. So he sent his son, whom he loved, <laughs> but that didn't work either. Because the renters figured if we can get rid of the son, he'll never bother us again. So, so let's just ponder this question for just a moment. Why do people reject Jesus? Jenny was a personable, competent, self-confident young woman. As she was talking with a friend, the topic of marriage came up, and her friend asked her about her future. Do you plan on just building a career? No, no, Jenny said. I'd love to meet someone and get married, but I seriously doubt it will ever happen. Why, her friend asked. Well, she said, I've dated a lot of men, and I've come to the conclusion that all men can be put into two categories, givers and takers. And so far, all I've met are takers, and I have no intention of marrying a taker. Taker, Isn't that one of the reasons why people reject Jesus, why we reject God? We have this idea that Jesus is a taker. He wants to take my fun and take my money and take my friends and take my life, and, and, and in return for that, he'll let bad things happen to me. <laughs> Do you understand the ultimate statement behind this view of God, this view of Jesus, is I cannot trust him. 
I can do better on my own. In fact, there were times in the past when I asked him for help and he didn't come through, at least not in the way I wanted. I guess God is a taker, not a giver. And when we start to believe that God is a taker, man, rejection is close at hand. I think another related reason why we reject God is because I don't want a king. I don't want the owner of the vineyard telling me what to do. I don't want a Caesar. I want control. Ron Sider was once talking with German philosopher, theologian, Wolfhart Pannenberg about Jesus' resurrection. And, and Pannenberg, one of the greatest minds of the 20th century, grew up in a strong atheistic family. But when he studied the evidence of the resurrection, he, he chose to believe. And in the conversation, Pannenberg re- repeated it at least twice. The evidence, he said, for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. First, it's a very unusual event. And secondly, if you believe it happened, you have to change the way you live. But see, we don't want a king. I mean, even Christians struggle with this. Christian Smith, a a sociologist at, at Notre Dame, describes moral therapeutic deism, moral therapeutic deism, as the primary expression of faith in our day. And what is that? It's a watered-down faith that sees God as a divine therapist, therapeutic deism, a divine therapist whose mission is to boost our self-esteem and make us happy. It suggests that God simply wants us to be good to others, that is the moral part, feel good about ourselves, therapeutic, and then God will just keep out of our stuff, that's deism. In essence, it's a Christianity without Christ. It's a, it's a Christianity without surrender, without the cross. Which leads to the last reason why people reject Jesus. Jesus said to them, your mistake is you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. We, we don't know Jesus. We, we reject him. I reject him because I don't know him. Now, I'm I'm certain there are other reasons to reject Jesus, other reasons why people reject Jesus, but but let me just close with a question. And I know it's a question that presupposes that he is who he said he is. But the question is, why doesn't he reject us? Let, Let me go back to that story, the parable that started our journey. The man sends his son, right? only to have the renters kill his son. And then Jesus asked the question, what do you suppose the vineyard owner will do? It's not so clear in Mark's gospel, but Matthew makes it very clear that the response comes from the religious leaders who are listening. When Jesus asked that question, the religious leaders who are listening to him says, I know what's going to happen. The owner will kill the renters and give the vineyard to somebody else. And then Jesus responds with a somewhat cryptic statement. He says, Wait a minute, haven't you read the scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, when you first read that statement, that's in Mark 12, verses 10 and 11. When you first read that statement, it appears that Jesus is kind of prophetically rubbing it in. (laughs) Like, you guys are rejecting me, but I'm going to end up being the cornerstone of life. But as I was working on this parable and trying to understand it, I, I kept asking, is there something more to it? Is the correct answer to what God will do, really, he'll kill him and start over. But but then I went and I read the context to these words in Mark 12, 10 through 11. And in Mark 12, 10 through 11, Jesus is quoting 
Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 opens with the words, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. That's the context of what Jesus says with the whole cornerstone and what God is doing is marvelous in, his, in, in our eyes. Psalm 118 opens with the words, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. And it closes with the words, Psalm 118, Again, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. In between that refrain is repeated three more times. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. Can I tell you what I think Jesus means when he looks at these religious leaders, these men who have rejected him and will ultimately help to kill him? What he means when he says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it's marvelous in his eyes. What Jesus is saying is this. Even if you reject me, even if you kill me, you cannot stop the love of God for the world for you. His love endures forever. Why doesn't God reject us when we reject his son? It's because of his fierce, enduring, never-ending love. Even though you reject me, he says, even though you kill my son and rebel against me, you cannot stop me from loving you. Let me close by just rereading the parable part in Mark chapter 12 through the message paraphrase. It says, then Jesus started telling them stories. A man planted a vineyard. He fenced it, dug a wine press, erected a watchtower, turned it over to the farmhands and went off on a trip. At the time for harvest, he sent a servant back to the farmhands to collect his profits. They grabbed him beat him up and sent him off empty-handed. So he sent another servant. That one they tarred and feathered. He sent another one. That one they killed and on and on. Many others. Some they beat, some they killed. And finally, there was only one left, a beloved son. In a last-ditch effort, he sent him, thinking, surely they'll respect my son. But those farmhands saw their chance. They rubbed their hands together in greed and said, this is the heir. Let's kill him. And have it all for ourselves. So they grabbed him and killed him and threw him over the fence. What do you think the owner of the vineyard will do? Right. Jesus responded to the Pharisees, the leaders. Right. He'll come and get rid of everyone. Then he'll assign the care of the vineyard to the others. But read it for yourself in scripture. That stone the masons threw out is now the cornerstone. This is God's work. We rub our eyes and we can hardly believe it. Why doesn't God reject us? Because his love endures forever. That's why Jesus is the cornerstone of a whole new life. This is God's work. We rub our eyes and we can hardly believe it. Let me pray for you. Father God, thank you for your fierce, enduring, persevering, never-ending love. Thank you that just like the farmhands who rejected your son and killed him, that even though we turn away, even though we seek after other stuff, even though we don't prioritize your love as the greatest thing in the world. You you keep on loving. You, you still love us. God, I pray with all my heart that each and every person listening to the sound of my voice would know. God, would you show them personally in some way that matters to them today? Would you show them how very much you love them, that your love endures forever, that you are good, that you are a good father? God, I pray that your love would soak into our hearts, would would soften our hearts, would heal the broken places. God, I, I ask that you would help us to be a kingdom people. We ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.